Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 14th, 2022, and my guest is Roland Fryer of Harvard University. He was awarded the John Bates Clark Medal in 2015 and is one of the premier empirical economists of his generation. Roland, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to this morning. So let's start. We're going to cover a couple things um, in our conversation. Three things, actually. We're going to talk about your work in education, your work in crime, and then uh, your work is uh, a uh, as an entrepreneur and a venture that you've uh, you've been involved in recently, and I'm interested in all three. So let's start with your work in education. You started off, uh, you did something really had a crazy idea, uh, which is a very natural idea for an economist and repugnant to most non-economists, which was <laughs> could monetary incentives affect student behavior? teacher behavior or parent behavior. Fantastically interesting idea, um, which I'm sure horrified a lot of people. We'll talk about both what you found and the reaction people uh, had. But let's start with what you found. You started with students, I think. Yeah, I started with students. And and first, um, let me just say that that for a large part of my career, I have specialized in things that uh, delighted economists and, and was repulsive for everyone else. So that's that's a great way to start this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it started at PS70 in the Bronx, actually. Um, I'd gotten to Harvard from, uh, moved here from the University of Chicago, where I did kind of a quasi postdoc. And my grandmother was just in my ear about uh, making a difference. And that she wasn't interested about how cool my office was. She was interested in whether I knew the janitor's name, things like that. She she was just an amazing woman. And so to, to really to please her, I wasn't in the beginning, I wasn't thinking about a cool research project, but just trying to please my grandmother. I called up PS70 in the Bronx. It's a place in the South Bronx where I had spent some time as a kid um, uh, when I was 11 or 12 years old. And I ordered them pizza. So... <laughs> Every month, the teachers would call me and give me an up or down. Did the students behave or did they not? And uh, and if they behaved, I ordered pizza. Literally me. Picked up the phone, ordered pizza, had it delivered to the students. Uh, and the kids apparently really liked it. And that's where it started. And uh, after that year, the principal was thrilled, wanted to do it again. And I happened to meet Joel Klein, who was the chancellor. I met him here at Harvard. And he said, hey, I heard about this pizza thing you're doing in the South Bronx. Would you like to do it in more schools? And I said, well, sure, I'd love to help. Uh, and he says, all right, well, you come down. And he introduced me to a bunch of principals. And it turns out they were, they were pretty into this. Um, and, but I said, well, we have to do monetary incentives because I can't order pizza for 40 different schools, right? Like, I, I, you know, I'll never get tenure here at Harvard. Um, and... I, I don't want to take you into all the sidewinders, but but needless to say, I was kicked out of the New York City public schools three times. <laughs> I tried to do this experiment three times, kicked out. I mean, really kicked out, Russ, like in the middle of a school visit, told, go to the car and leave. 
Why? <laughs> so Why? We can get into that if you yeah, want I mean, to. Yeah, I'm interested. But Why were you thrown out? I was thrown out because of the controversy of surrounding paying kids to learn. It was unlike anything. Look, I was like 25, 26 years old, right? I, it didn't dawn on me that providing incentives for students to do behaviors that we thought were highly correlated with achievement and thus highly correlated with income and home ownership later uh, was somehow repulsive. But people were picketing outside my house. Okay. It was unbelievable. And in any event, and, and, and the political winds in New York at the time, I used to get up every morning at 5 a.m. to read the newspapers because I didn't know if the program was going to go or not go. Right. Imagine that risk, by the way, for an assistant professor in a research project. You know, you've dumped months and months of your time anyway, and you don't know if it's going to go forward. So long story short here, um, uh, the we we were able to get 140 schools signed up in New York City. But I was a total nobody. I couldn't even convene an event where 140 principals would show up. So I went door by door by door for 100. That's all I did for one summer, 140 schools, and um, signed them up. And by the time we did that, uh, it took years to actually get to that point. Again, being thrown out and invited back, et cetera. To my amazement, Dallas wanted to do something. They wanted to pay kids books to uh, pay kids for reading books. D.C. wanted to do something. They wanted a more. It was Michelle Reed when she was there. They wanted a more um, holistic incentive scheme that rewarded homework, but also behavior. Chicago, when Arnie Duncan was there before he was secretary uh, of education, he wanted to do something based on grades. So lo and behold, after tremendous failure for multiple years trying to get from pizza to paying financial incentives, here we were. And we had, I don't know, um, uh, hundreds of schools. 40,000 students or so, and we spent $15 million trying to pay kids uh, to do the things that we thought were, were correlated with high achievement. Now, a couple of things. Uh, one, I didn't find this repulsive because, frankly, everyone I know in middle-class families provide incentives for their kids to do the behaviors that they want, okay? Uh, I'm going to really offend your listeners here. My daughters are nine and six. The other day, they didn't take their place from the table after dinner. So I took them and gave them a bill for two bucks a piece. <laughs> they have, and now after dinner, you should see it. They grab those plates and they're not giving my dad two dollars. <laughs> so uh, but every middle class family that I know, an upper middle class family does this in some way, shape or form. And number two, I really believe that it was important for not crushing the love of learning, but fostering it, particularly in inner city schools where um, where gangs and other and, 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 and other things are giving them incentives to go in the opposite direction. And so and what kind of magnitude are we talking about here? Great question. It was all centered around the price of an Xbox at the time. So um, <laughs> in fourth grade, you could make up to two hundred and fifty dollars uh, per year. In New York, and in seventh grade, you can make up to five hundred. So it's real money. It's not like a. It's not real a quarter. Money. 
Okay. It's not a quarter. It's not, it's not what my grandmother used to give me for good behavior, which was uh, the lack of a slap on the back of the head. But, yeah. but, it was, but it was, it was real cash. And look, I don't want to forget this. We opened up bank accounts for every single kid and we deposited the money into the bank account. And we did our best to try to do financial literacy, but I'm not, you know, I'm not sure it, it really worked because I was walking to school one day and a kid came up to me and says, yo, professor, uh, would you like me to manage your money? <laughs> I said, sure. But like, what you tell me about your, your investment thesis? How are you going to manage my money? He said, I'm going to manage your money just like I do mine. I'm going to put it in the bank for a month, earn some of that interest. And then I'm going to go eat ice cream. <laughs> no, 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 thank you. <laughs> but, but we did give them financial literacy. We opened up bank accounts. We did direct deposits into those bank accounts. And we have data on what the kids spent their money on. We have data on whether or not it affected intrinsic motivation. And most important for, 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 uh, for me, we have good data on whether or not it was effective at increasing test scores. And, and was the, obviously... The standard argument against this, um, I think a lot of people have a, a moral revulsion on this just in general uh, and neglecting the whole issue of, quote, other middle class incentives. But the, the intellectual claim against it would be if you pay people to to learn, then they, they might do it while you're paying them. But you'll have taught them that learning is something that's to be compensated and not to be done for its own sake. Now, I, I would just say, before I give you a chance to answer, I find that argument remarkably unexciting because they don't <laughs> teach people to learn for their own sake anyway. So it's not like we're corrupting anything. But the real question is, you know, the longer-term effects, if any, and even the short-term effects would be, would be valuable, but were you able to do any follow-up over over time, besides the test scores, like in how many books they would read a year and that kind of thing, after the after the monetary incentive stopped. Absolutely. And I'm going to tell you the results, but I also want to just push back on the whole supposition that somehow if three years later we look at their test scores and they're not still positive, that somehow it failed, Okay. Uh, so, you know, I ask my students all the time, do you believe going to the gym makes you in better, puts you in better shape? Of course. Okay. Well, if you go to the gym every day religiously for a year and then don't go again for five years and then I check your, your health and say not that much different and you, are you going to say the gym doesn't work? No. In fact, it's almost proof that it does so that you should continue to do it. Yeah. In terms of the students, we followed them up and we looked at longer term test scores. Let me just give you the results first, yeah. all the results and then, and then in a picture. Okay. I'm getting too excited to talk to you this morning. Number one, we designed the incentives, um, not because we were smart, but because we, we got lucky. Um, the, the first set of incentives we gave were for outputs. Okay. Uh, pay, 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 you do X, we provide Y. That's the way classic economic theory, the way I was trained at the University of Chicago would tell me to design the, the, the incentives. So in New York, we paid kids for uh, test scores. And in Chicago, we paid kids for, for grades. And those were our first two cities. And so we thought we'd do that. Then other cities came aboard and I thought to myself, well, I don't want to do the same thing over and over again. Let's see if we can get some experimental variation that's halfway interesting. So we paid for inputs, um, meaning instead of saying you get a test score and then you get um, money, do the behaviors we know that are important. Read books. That was Dallas. 
do your homework, et cetera. That was Houston and D.C. And so what we found to a large degree uh, is that when you pay for outputs, we didn't get any results at all. Pure zeros. Okay. When we paid for inputs, those experiments, all three of them worked and were statistically significant. Okay. And again, and give, us the, give us the magnitudes when you say they work. Sure. Statistical significance sure. is nice. means it's higher, different than chance. <laughs> but of course, you care about how big it is. Yeah, of course. I forgot I was talking to Russ Roberts here. All right. So, so the, uh, in Dallas, for example, we paid kids $2 a book to read, up to 20 books. The average payout was roughly $20. And those kids who were in the treatment group, meaning they read the, they were paid to read books relative to a control, all these are randomized controlled trials. They advanced the equivalent of roughly two and a half months of schooling. Okay? Huge. If I could give you two and a half Huge. months more of traditional public school for $20 per kid, you'd take it in a heartbeat. Yep. Okay. Uh, similar things in Houston. Similar things in D.C. in terms of the magnitude, that, you know, for, for the, the real techies out there, roughly a quarter standard deviation gain um, uh, on average for, for students. So that for us was pretty impressive given the cost. OK, is it going to close the racial achievement gap in America? No. Is it something with a high return on investment that we should all be looking at from a public policy perspective? Absolutely. OK, um, now let's let's skip to more outcomes. We also looked two, three years later, and I'd say roughly 70% of the effect was still there. Okay. After, so, after the monetary piece had after ended. After the incentives were taken fabulous. away. Okay. Better than going to the gym. Yep. <laughs> I bet 70% of the effect is not still there. And uh, two more important pieces. One, we measured the impact on their intrinsic motivation using the very scales that the social psychologists tell us are important. Right. And we had no impact on intrinsic motivation whatsoever. The coefficient was positive, but it wasn't statistically significant. I was hoping it was. So um, I was never really worried it was negative, because if you really get into the details of the types of things where when you remove monetary incentives, uh, you get negative results are things that people liked to do anyway. Giving blood. You give blood. You feel like a better person. I pay you to give blood. Then I stop paying you and say, hey. Last week, you paid me. I don't want to give you any blood anymore without paying me. Those are the kinds of things that were shown in that way. This is different, right? And, and, and that's why I didn't understand people's objections. It's like I am somehow going into inner cities and, and I'm ruining the, the, the very love of reading Beowulf, right? Have you read Beowulf? Okay. So <laughs> I was trying to foster it by paying kids incentives. And the last thing is we looked at what kids actually uh, spent the money on. We gave them the equivalent of a kid version of the consumer expenditure survey. And the answer is they saved a lot more than the control group. Okay. So their savings behavior was quite interesting. Um, and like my little friend, the financial manager, they spent a lot on ice cream, <laughs> video games, and shoes. Um, and, and, and that's okay too. But, but I think those are key pieces because you got to remember, Russ, when I first started this, uh, People said to me things like, aren't you worried they're going to buy drugs? And I said, no, you know, I didn't think, but for 75 bucks, a fourth grader was going to, you know, get some cocaine. I just didn't think it was going to be possible. That's not, you know, so, so you, you can kind of get where I'm going. There. It was, it was amazing the, the, the resistance to this idea, but, you know, over the years we have paid people, we've paid students. 
We've paid parents. We've paid teachers because I fundamentally believed it was a simple, uh, scalable way to think about the demand side of the equation for education. Right. A lot of our stuff is on the supply side and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with these supply side ideas. But, you know, I don't know. I think I remember Economics 101. Maybe there's an interaction term between the, the supply and the demands. The part that I find fascinating psychologically, and I don't know if you had a chance or an experience that would give you any insight into this, but, you know, I, I've been an advocate for all kinds of creative things to help public schools in America when I lived there. I'm still an advocate for them. Uh, any, anything. Uh, charter schools, vouchers, um, you, you name it. Those are easy ones. I, I try other things. And the reason it's really simple, um, for three generations, we failed inner city kids with horrible schools. And it's, it's not like, well, you've got this crazy idea, but the, we love the status quo. The status quo is awful. Almost no one defends the status quo. Was it, do you feel it was the, 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 those people who, who do care? who have good intentions, they want to spend more money, say. They have their own solution. Okay, I understand that they're, they're, there's a natural addiction to your own, the thing you've championed. But how could they not be open to an alternative in a world that was that's so depressing? Did, did you explore that with people? Did you ever have a feeling about that? Did people confess to you that, you know, you'd made them change their way of thinking at all? Yeah, that's a great question. No, no, no one confessed to me that, that, that I changed their thinking on this. Um, but your point needs to be double clicked on, which is in Washington, D.C., where we did the, the, these experiments, one of the places we did these experiments. When we were doing them, 80 percent of the uh, white eighth graders were proficient in math or reading on the NAEP scores, the National Education of Edu- National Association of Education Progress. And 8 percent for black students. Eight compared to 80. Okay. So it's a travesty, right? We need, I agree with you. And to put it very bluntly, I was willing to throw spaghetti at the wall, although I'm an economist, so I had an idea this would be better. And then be serious about measurement. And those things that work, we scale up. Those things that we don't, that don't, we don't. And I just had that as a view of how to get better. We don't have this. No one had the gospel. We didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but you could try things and scale those that work. Now, in terms of this, I think part of the reason there was just a vitriol reaction to this, Russ, which was there's something wrong about it at its core. These kids should just love it. Don't they understand what is great about education? And I tease my class. I have 240 students in my undergraduate class uh, this semester. I just teased them two days ago and says, I'm sure all of you are here for the, for the love of learning. You don't care anything about economic mobility, right? <laughs> or the grades, You're here the for credential. Yeah. <laughs> okay, no, you don't care about either. Look, what's hilarious about it, though, here's what kept me going. Uh, there were, I would say, literally USA Today polled, you know, thousands of people and said 50% were for and 50% were against this idea. It's fun to get up in the morning at 5 a.m. and read that. But I never met a kid that didn't like it. Okay. Not, okay. Okay. I met half a kid. I almost met a kid. Okay. So I'm in D.C. And the, the, because of all the flack or whatever, I, I love to give out checks for the first payment. Because I didn't want the first payment to go right in the bank accounts because those kids who didn't sign up or thought it was, you know, this was the inner city. Kids were like, you're not giving anything away for free. <laughs> and so I wanted to go in. I'd, I'd hand out checks for the first payment. Okay. So I'm in D.C. And 
uh, I'm there earlier and the principal takes me around and I, I go into a seventh grade classroom and they're having a phenomenal lecture about Mesopotamia. And the teacher introduces me and a kid with perfectly starched, I'll never forget this kid, perfectly starched khaki pants, a blue shirt. He's an African immigrant, comes up to me and says, sir, I do not think we should be paid to come to school and to do well. I think I should pay you to come to school and do well. And I said, I am so happy you said that. And I, I really, you, I said, you, you won't, you, I can't even explain how important that is to me. They go on about the class. 30 minutes later, I'm in the cafeteria. I'm handing out checks. Okay? I get to his name and I read the name. He pops up, but I don't want to offend. So I fold the check and I put it in my pocket. And he comes up to me and says, what are you doing? I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I, I'm up here to get my check. I said, well, no, 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 no. 30 minutes ago, you impressed me by telling me you did not want to be paid for school. In fact, you thought you ought to pay me, so I'm here to be paid. And he looked at me in the way that only a 12-year-old can with these sparkling eyes, this crisp blue shirt, and these crisp khaki pants and said, I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I met one kid who didn't want the incentives. Turns out uh, it, it was not quite true. So... Is that the bottom line for you of that experiment? Have you told me everything you want to tell me about the results? I'm sure you have many other stories like that that would be entertaining. But in terms of the, the bottom line of the findings, is that your finding? That's the bottom line. I think the, the, the key thing on incentives is they are very powerful, but very tricky to get right. Okay, let me give you an example. In Houston, we paid kids for math homework, okay? These kids in the treatment group did one standard deviation, more math homework, okay? Um, and I even tested their price sensitivity, Russ. You're going to love this. We were paying them $2 per math objective. Randomly in February, I just got an idea to estimate the price elasticity. So Monday morning, an email went out to every school, a blast, every parent. This week, it's $4, okay? Price elasticity was nearly one. Boom, you got double the output. Okay. Waited another two months, sent another email, $6 this week. Boom. Again, almost one. You got three times the original effort. Could kids respond to incentives? And I remember waiting for the district test scores, thinking this is going to be the biggest effect we've ever had. Turns out we got a great effect on math and almost the exact negative effect on reading. I think I got that one. Okay. I, think I, can, I think I can figure that one out. <laughs> right. It wasn't it wasn't because they lost the love of learning. No. It's because they substituted between tasks. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Okay. I thought what we were going to do when we gave incentives was increase the amount of time spent on school and crowd out hanging out with your friends. No, no. no these kids are very smart. They said the price for crowding out friends is a lot higher than six dollars. Yeah. <laughs> but you can crowd out English. Yeah. And so I only say that to say that's fabulous. Look, very powerful, but we have to design them well, and 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 I. It's really hard a priori to understand how exactly to design them. Well. Yeah, uh, what gets measured gets managed is a classic insight that's exactly. mostly true, and exactly. in this case, overwhelmingly true. I, I, I asked you that for that quote bottom line because uh, this work was done uh, roughly. When was this work done? What years? Two thousand eight through two thousand ten. So, long more than a decade ago. 
And I remember at the time I was almost an academic economist in those days. I was I was paying more attention than I am now. But in preparing for this interview, I went back and, and of course, looked at your work and looked at the um, what has been written about it. And unfortunately or not, uh, most people who write about it say, Friar found no effect of paying people. Uh, have you noticed that? Am I wrong in that, yes. that that's the assessment? No. Well, that's a whole other interview, my friend. But it, it's it's... You know, and at best mixed results. I guess they are mixed, but it would have been nice for someone to really read the papers and say, "Hey, here, if you're going to do it, you do it this way." And so I tried to enter the the fray and and make some make some uh, have some clarity on this. But yes, a lot of people say no results. People don't like this. However, you know, the state of Colorado passed a law where you, your schools can use their Title One money to pay kids to read books, and so you see. Counts. In pockets that, that people have expanded this, but not nearly enough for my taste. I mean, we, we the whole idea of this and other experiments was to to be a lighthouse to, to to show the way so that other folks could could adopt things that had been proven to work, and, and that didn't happen here. So let's talk about the the five things that that probably matter that you found when you looked. I think at uh, successful schools and that had large differences with their uh, counterparts in things like achievement test scores and so on. Um, what are those five things that you found mattered as a separate bit, sure. separate piece, part of, of your work? Different. Parts. Yes. Um, it was, a, it, this was work that I wanted to go deeper that, you know, one quarter standard deviation is great, but the, the, the gap is a standard deviation and a, and a quarter, right? So you still need a lot more. And the question is what I was skeptical that incentives could get us all the way there. Um, and so I wanted, and on the other hand, there are gap closing schools out there. I did work on the Harlem Children's Zone. There are other charter schools that were amazing. Interesting thing about charter schools is that on average, they're not that much better than public schools, but there's lots of variance, which makes them interesting, right? So you can try to study what makes some of them good and what others not so good. They all have choices and those choices have consequences. So that's what we did. We we took two years and we went in and we really studied, tried to understand what makes some charter schools good and other charter schools not so good. I'll spare you the details, but the five things that we found, they explained 50% of the variance uh, in the charter school sample were basic things like um, uh, more time in school. So I call it the basic physics of education. If you're behind, you have to tell people, you know, you have to either work harder or tell people in front of you, please slow down. Um, and so that's, that, that's, you know, more time in school was important. Uh, either human capital strategies, how they recruit, retain, develop teachers were important. How they use data uh, to really inform instruction was one of the key pillars. You know, Explain that. In 2000, yeah. Well, in 2000, when I first got started at education reform, um, data was, was a real asset. Now it can be a liability because there's so much of it and they don't know what to do about it. And so... What we really found that was key in schools was not only did they collect data on who was passing and who wasn't in terms of objectives throughout the year, but they had plans of what to do about it, right? So the good schools would do something like this. Every two to three weeks, they'd give a really short form assessment. Did you understand the last two or three weeks? And they'd have a strategy. If 80% understood it, then we'd move on. We'd take the 20%, put them in small groups after or before school, maybe even during lunch, and we'd tutor them and get them back up to speed while the rest of the class went ahead. If 30% got it and 70% didn't, we'd all slow down and we'd go back and reteach those subjects, okay? But if you only take one assessment at the end of the year 
And like these, some of the DC school, 92% of the kids fail, then you take the summers off. Like that's not a strategy, but almost constantly assessing, not in a way that's high touch, low stakes test, where you can just understand whether or not uh, students are getting the concepts. That was number three, very, very important. Number four was uh, putting kids in small groups. I guess it's okay to say tutoring now because it's back in vogue. Um, and so when schools that were effective put kids in groups of six or less, four or more days per year. Now, this is a big, important concept because it has to be high dosage tutoring. Tutoring for four hours a year is going to get you what you expect. Not a lot. Okay. It has to be high dosage. Tutoring is in vogue, but people don't want the high dosage part of it. You have to really spend the time to catch up. And the last one is really, uh, you know, to me is the glue that binds it all together. And that is a culture of high expectations. Um, the schools, all the schools we dealt with, Russ, had uh, kids at issues with poverty. Uh, 88% of them came from single female-headed households. Uh, they were crime in their neighborhoods. And, and that is all awful. And we ought to be working on that problem, too. But the schools that were effective did not use that as an excuse not to educate them. They understood that they have seven hours to make up for all that. Now, some people are going to say, Roland, you crazy. You can't make up for all that. Fine. But you got to do the best you can. And I have a view. This is not scientific, but I have a view that kids will live up or down to our expectations. And the schools that were effective really were empathetic and understood the challenges that kids came across the, the thresholds of their doors with. But nevertheless, they knew that potential was distributed equally and opportunity was not, and they were going to drive those kids to be the best they could be. So those were the five things. And, um, but we didn't want to stop there. Those were five correlations. We wanted to get causal estimates. So we got really, really lucky over, it took us a couple of years, but we got really lucky. And the Houston public schools asked us to come in and apply these five things in an experimental setting in their schools. They gave us the worst 20 schools in Houston. There were um, four high schools, five middle schools, and 11 elementary schools. They were going to be taken over by the state. That's why the superintendent wanted to, to, to do this. And so we put these five things into those 20 schools. And let me tell you a little bit, if you have patience, a little bit exactly how we did it. Number one. I just want to say it's yes. one of the most important lessons of economics and I would say of, of management is that uh, passing legislation does not always have the impact that you think it does and that monitoring <laughs> it uh, is often necessary with incentives. And so I think in this kind of, these are, I think everyone would say, well, those all make sense to me. <laughs> implement quote implementing them is is not a simple thing because yes uh announcing it is not sufficient uh i i remember uh a friend of mine putting a curriculum into a school only to discover a few months later that none of the teachers were using it and yeah, asking exactly. didn't um didn't we have that workshop where we told you to <laughs> use this new curriculum they said oh yeah 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 but it, you know the new one doesn't work so we're doing the old one and don't, and didn't tell anybody Right. And right. and easily that right. could have just been a whole year where your evaluation of that new curriculum would have found no effect because it was never tried, actually. 100%. So go ahead. How did you, you possibly implement that across an entire school with and with how many people? No, oh, man. Well, let me double click on something you said, which is that these things are obvious. And that's what's so frustrating. 
because my grandmother was a sixth grade English teacher. She integrated schools in 1969 in Florida. She has an amazing story of, of, can you imagine parking your car and being spit on on the way to class? But then those same parents teaching their kids subject verb agreement <laughs> 30 minutes later. So, um, and I, 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 when my grandmother was alive, I, I, I lived to impress her. I never quite got there, but I lived to impress her. Uh, and I remember she called me one day and says, what are you doing up there at Harvard? I told her about the five things. And her response was something like, they pay you for that? <laughs> it was so incredibly obvious, yeah. right? Of course we should be doing this. And I said, well, grandma, they're not doing it. Why, why aren't they doing it? Why is this revolutionary? And so here's what we did to implement these things. Number one, we lengthened the school year two weeks and we lengthened the school day an hour. Okay. That was roughly 20% more school and equivalent to what the high achieving charters were doing. Now, even that wasn't without controversy because I got a call from someone in the travel and tourism department. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> kids, kids can't go back to school two weeks earlier. I said, look, man, poor kids deserve a chance. He said, poor kids? Uh, they're, they're not going to come here to our resort. It's fine. Um, that's literally a, a conversation. So uh, we, that's what we did on the time. Uh, number two, uh, on the human capital pieces, uh, 19 of the 20 principals were removed and 50% of the teachers. Okay. Whoa. Um, yes, this was a this was a real uh, rehab of of these public schools. Wow. Third, we brought in data systems to be able to. Um, we did two things on the data side. One, we implemented this set of short cycle assessments so that every three weeks we get data on where our kids were, and more importantly, and this is really low tech here. We created a series of drop boxes so that we could just drop in for each teacher exactly what they needed to know, right? Because the test, you, know, you get a 300-page report and you got to figure out which one is yours. No one's going to do that, okay? So we did that. Four, we hired uh, 400 tutors to come down to Houston and tutor in grades four, six, and nine. Now, we, should, we wanted to tutor all grades, but, you know, this was already a $60 million experiment. We didn't, we couldn't raise the money to do every grade. And as an economist, since this was the highest, you know, cost item, the tutoring, because the tutors made $25,000 a year, I wanted a little differentiation so I could understand whether it was worth it in terms of the return on investment. So we brought these tutors. People said, Roland, no one's going to come down to Houston to tutor for $25,000 a year. In five weeks, we had 1,200 applications. Okay. People earnestly wanted to help. And the fifth thing uh, that we did was on the culture of high expectations. So we took the graffiti down. We took the, I mean, they, some of these schools had chain link fences, like they were prisons. And I, I couldn't figure out they were trying to keep the kids in and keep them out. Um, and we took all those down and we tried our best to change the, the culture. And I could give you examples, but, but the, we, we wanted to ensure that every kid thought had a chance, real chance to succeed. I mean, sometimes you go in these schools, man, and, uh, they'll have a goal that 40% of the kids should have basic skills next year. How can that be your goal? Okay. I, I, we interviewed all the teachers, uh, a team of people, not, not me, but a team of people interviewed all the teachers and every teacher who said something like, give me some solid curriculum. I'll put in the effort. Every kid can do it. Let's go. All stayed. All of them stayed. 
But we had some teachers. I, I, I have a tendency to tell the truth here. We had some teachers that said to us, look, we don't need these five things. We only need one thing. And I said, well, what do you need? Smarter kids. And uh, makes, if you have that attitude, it's hard. You can't. You can't do the work. Okay. It makes me cry. Actually, uh, I, it, it it it's so it, it's heartbreaking. It, it's um, yeah. Again, to having having thought a lot about education over the years and been a parent, which is not so different than being a teacher. High expectations is fabulous. You may your your children may not love you every minute, and your students may not love you every minute, but they might thank you later. <laughs> My grandmother used to tell me, "You don't you don't have to like me, but you're going to respect what I'm doing." Yeah, I, I, and, I just want to mention your grandmother reminds me of a poem by James Dickey called "The Bee," and uh, we'll put a link up to that poem. It's about great coaches and great teachers and great parents. So you're blessed to have a, a grandmother who is hard to please, but. I'm sure that was beyond measure. Sure it was harder for beyond her measure. than it was for you. Yeah, that's what she said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, we did these things and we thought every kid should succeed. And I'll give you one example of the culture of high expectations. We hired these amazing principals. Nicole Moore was one of the principals of our, one of our toughest middle schools, Key Middle School. And there was a kid in the hallways between classes as I was touring. So part of part of the thing that we did with the experiment, talk about your friend with the curriculum, is we came down every four weeks to, to score where they were in terms of implementation of the five tenants. Okay. So we're down there on one of these trips and we toured all 20 schools. It took all week. It was a whole ordeal. And there's a kid in the hallway and the kid doesn't have um, functional arms. Okay. He doesn't have arms. And the principal comes out and starts getting on him. Get your butt in class. You can. Do. And I'm like, okay, I'm a tough guy too, but like, let's give the kid a break. Yeah. And when he goes off to class, she looks at me and she goes, don't you dare look at him like that. He will achieve. <laughs> and they, you know, she says, yeah, sometimes he needs help with maybe unbuttoning his pants or this or that, or, but they found him a special pencil. He will do it. Don't you dare take it easy on him. I was blown away yeah, by that's that. That's incredible. Because it was done out of love. Yeah. It was done out of deep empathy and love for that student and understanding what the future held if he did not get the basic skills in seventh grade. And for those of us who want to take it easy on them, that's for us. That's not for that, that student. And that's just one of many, many examples. Okay. So what happened? Let's fast forward. Yeah, what happened? Let's I'm on the edge forward. of my seat. I know listeners are too. In three years in the secondary schools, middle and high schools, we closed the racial achievement gap in math and cut it by a third in reading. In five years, we did the same thing in the elementary schools. For, for our high schools, every single pupil was admitted to a two- or four-year college. And this is 20,000, 30,000 kids. And what was that, and, what would that number have been before you got there in Houston in the bottom high schools? Half. Yeah. Maybe. All of them didn't go. Okay? That's Okay. Yeah. That's their choice. Sure. The adults in the building should make that choice for them. 
right? Give them opportunities and then they can make their choice. I'm an economist. I understand supply and demand. Not everybody should or wants to go to college and that's okay. But everyone deserves the opportunity. Uh, and, and so that's what we did. And it's the, in my opinion, uh, probably the most important work I've ever done. I've never worked so hard. And there were, there are real kids in there who, who I know, right? There's a kid who showed up in my Harvard undergraduate class and said, Hey, I was in Sharpstown High School, man. Thanks. And I broke down. Yeah, I would too. I mean, <laughs> we can do it. And that's what gets me so frustrated is it's not that we don't know what to do. I'm not saying this experiment is perfect. We spent $1,863 more per kid, but, you know, the test scores are, are such that, you know, the return on investment is huge, but it can still be improved. The issue is not that we don't know what to do. The issue is we don't have the courage to do it because it's hard and you might not win any popularity contests. And people were really angry with me because, you know, there was a lot of teacher turnover. But the issue is, do you fundamentally believe that these kids are capable or not? Because the truth is, if you don't, then of course you should, you know, sprinkle a little crumbs here and there, give them some backpacks and move on your way, thinking of yourself as a good person. But if you fundamentally believe that they have the same potential as your kids and that they are rotting away in these horrible schools, then you should not be able to sleep making a difference and making a change. And, 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 and we can't wait. They're not going to get fourth grade back. This is it right now. And, and so I'm super fired up about this. And that's why I did the experiment. And, and one of the reasons I spent nearly two decades focused on education, because there is a way to reform traditional public schools if the adults will do what it takes to actually help the kids. Did you or have others tried to provide a template of how to implement those five things? I'm thinking about kind of a crazy thing, kind of a slightly repugnant analogy. But, you know, one of the reasons McDonald's is so successful, which I know you've had some day-to-day experience with in your youth, uh, is that they didn't find a few thousand chefs or cooks who could cook as well as the first one. They found a system that would let an okay chef, an okay cook, an okay yes. manager do pretty well. It's not a great product, yes. but it's a pretty good product. It's reliable. It's consistent. Yes. Have you thought about, you know, did you try, have you tried, have others tried to do the kind of data systems, tutoring, et cetera, that, that worked for you in that, in that setting? hundred percent, hundred percent. Uh, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked a hundred percent. We used to call it the popcorn button. We said, how do we take this and make it the popcorn button? We specifically use the McDonald's analogy. Um, and we did two things. One, we, um, tried to boil this down and put together a package so that others could take it and use it. Um, but more importantly, you know, um, we also did a revenue neutral version where we saw, we said, look, now that we've done the experiment, we think we know what the high leverage points were and maybe making principles better managers. Um, and so providing management training and feedback and guides can make a good principle a great principle. Yeah. One that's checked out, there's nothing you can do. 
but there's a lot of folks who are have the passion but could help could use help with skill development. And so we did that. We did that experiment too. Right? We ran that experiment. Took other we didn't change the principles. We didn't change the print, uh, teachers. We just went in and gave them the management handbook on that and I'd say the results were roughly half of what we found um when we did the big changes. But huge, but you know, but huge, right? Because there's no, you know, there was it was free. There was no cost. Nothing's free, but, no, but- <laughs> it didn't have any additional resources from the school district in terms of uh, money. And so, look, we tried all of that, and and one of my big frustrations was that this was not expanded. Um, we held conferences down there. People came down and saw the schools. You know, they were blow you away good. Some of them were really amazing, but. We expanded to Denver. We expanded to other places, but it didn't catch fire. And the reason it didn't catch fire is because it's hard work. Yeah, and and it requires uh, a level of effort and strategy that um, some folks just aren't willing to put in. And some of the human capital changes, whether it's changing the people or changing the people. Are hard, and so you know the superintendent of you know a school district in the Midwest here in, in the U.S. <clears throat> called me and says, "Hey, man, I've been trying this stuff, but you didn't tell me it was gonna people gonna be upset about it." And I said, "You can't close the racial achievement gap and win the popularity contest in the same year. You have to wait three years. <laughs> you, have to, you have to wait until you have real results, and then people will come along." And I think that that those politics are really hard to get get past. I just want to add that. You know, I'm the president of a college here in Jerusalem, and education is really hard, obviously. My general view is that you know, my wife's a high school teacher, was a high school teacher in America. Most teachers would like to be better than they are, but they're not sure how to get there from here. You know, if you never played a sport, take an obscure sport, archery, or um, if you've never played golf. And I said, here's a golf club. You know, good luck. Try to get try to get the ball in the holes by hitting it as few times as possible. You probably wouldn't do very well, and you wouldn't get better over time. That's you wouldn't know how to practice to get better. So you have to give teachers. There is an innate part of being a great teacher, but most of it's learned. Being a great lecturer is a different thing, but being a great teacher is can be taught. Is my my view, and. But there's a second piece, which is that you have to put in the time and the effort, and it is work. It's not like a magic trick where you just put a different a switch on a different setting or dial at a different number. You have to grade the homework sometimes and give them feedback every night, and that means that you're going to give up something at home maybe. It's very hard, and if you don't give people the incentive to do that, then you can only do it with attracting the kind of people who will do it out of love, and that's a scarce commodity, obviously. So, you know, 100%. all of this... The hard part of it, people who are skeptical about economics will say things like, oh, you know, incentives don't really matter because you're either a good teacher or you're not. And that's not true. It, it's true totally there's great. an innate part, but the incentives, whether it's merit pay or a bonus or whether it's the thrill of staying, keeping your job or whatever it is, those are what create the devotion to the task. And that is grossly yes. underestimated yes. in this business. Yes. They think it's just, oh, yeah, yes. I taught my class. No, no, no. There's prep and there's homework return and there's time one-on-one yes. after class with the student who's struggling emotionally with whatever it is. It all requires devotion. And it's yes. much better to have it innately than to incentivize it. 
But you're going to have a very small school if you're only going to rely on devotion generally. You've got to have a little of both. Totally agree with you. And I'm glad you, you, you said that because um, this is not nothing I'm saying is anti-teacher, of course. But it's pro-teacher in the sense that we paid our teachers more because they, they, they worked harder. <laughs> Right. One of the things that drives me nuts about reformers is they think that, you know, you ought to get teachers to work so hard and not pay them more. Who else in the world does that? Right. And so, yes, our teachers came for extra practice and training on on some weekends and we paid them more. And, you know, the, the, the reason that we were able to make those human capital changes is because we treated people with dignity and respect, even when we had to make those changes. And so, you know, we, we spent money buying out contracts. Um, and things like that. So it is a hundred percent. If you, and that's why I gave that example, any teacher in our schools that said, Hey, more support, more time, more training, we can do this all state because those are the folks we wanted. Um, and, and they were effective, but we also paid really effective teachers in other neighborhoods, more money to come into these schools and, and, and work. And so we wanted, we, it, it all has to align the incentives. It's not just about teachers. It's also about great leadership. You have to teachers, everybody, all of us want to feel bought into a mission that's bigger than what, than, than our individual selves. Yeah. And so that's why we had to have 19 out of the 20 principles be different because they had to be able to lead. And this is, and, and, and this is real work and it's hard and it's a mission. Uh, and, and you can do that, but you have to reward people. You have to support people and you have to treat them with dignity and respect. Uh, and, and I think our principals in these schools did that beautifully. Um, if you could only, um, if I were in a failing school, if I were the head of a failing school and I was disappointed with my results and I came to you and I said, our school's a mess. I got mediocre teachers. Um, they're not well motivated. Uh, I can't get rid of the bad ones. I'm just kind of, but, but I care. What's the one thing that you would suggest? Is there a one thing? Is there a thing with the biggest marginal impact by itself that you think might make the most difference? Yeah, it's going to have to be a one-two punch. Sorry, I can't. Okay. There's no golden me- thing, but it's important. The one-two punch is understand where kids are deficient. So you need a bit of data. And then small groups, high dosage on those things that they need support on. because. I have seen many, many, many times over and over teachers be ineffective in a group of 20 or 25 students be unruly in a group of 20 or 25, but heck, even I can be a good teacher when there's only three kids in front of me. Yeah. And so uh, finding creative ways to make that happen, whether it's the use of technology and grouping and things like that, you can do it. So that the key things are data, small groups for high dosages. They, See, they, they, I mean, the, 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 the one last thing is the, the grades where we did all five things where we had the tutoring. I mean, the effects of like 0.6 standard deviations a year. <laughs> it's huge, right? Like, right? like those things are unbelievable. And so if you can do that, you'll have a huge impact. Uh, what would you say? Um, well, let, let me ask it a different way. There's a wonderful quote from Milton Friedman. I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but basically he says, uh, you know, if you want better political outcomes, most a lot of people think we need we need better people to be politicians, and he said actually it's what you want is a system where bad people have the incentive to be good. 
that the the incentives that politicians face are the challenge, not necessarily their innate goodness or badness. I think about this because um, I think about Jeffrey Canada, who I know you know, started the Harlem Children's Zone. And I had a interview with Paul Tuff ages and ages ago on Econ Talk, where he featured Canada in his uh, book. And he learned from this experience of studying the Harlem Children's Zone that we need to take the things that Jeffrey Canada does and implement them in other places, somewhat similar to what, what you are suggesting. But he wanted to do that in public schools where my worry would be that there's not much incentive to do them well. And he felt that way because there's not enough Jeffrey Canada's in the world. He's special. The, the goal can't be let's get more of him and put them in the principal position. Is yes. there something to be said for the argument that, again, the McDonald's metaphor, that there are people who would be good enough principals as long as they had the incentives for sure. to, to, what we did. to work with their, what with their teachers? What we did. I mean, Jeff Canada uh, is a is a friend and I've known him for more than a decade. And he's, I think he's an American hero, but there's nothing in these five things that he doesn't think is totally obvious and what he does in Harlem Children's Zone. He does more than these five yeah, things, but these are the core five things and for his schools. And so exactly this, I was having dinner with Jeff Canada in 2008 or 2009. And I was at his house and his wife was there and I looked at her and I said, you know, one of my goals is to boil your husband down into pill form so I can distribute it. And she thought this was like the most of <laughs> who talks like that. She like, right? <laughs> and essentially that's what we did. He was a big help in designing a lot of the questions on culture and expectations and, and tutoring and things like that. He was a big help for us to understand what those five things might be. So this is exactly what you just described, is taking those geniuses like Jeff Canada and others who are running amazing schools and figuring out what the key essential elements are so that we can distribute them widely. This doesn't take a superhuman, right? A little old nerd from Harvard can run 20 schools and have the same effects, right? And so if, if the little old nerd from Harvard can do it, there's tons of principals who are way better than I am at, at doing this work and they can implement it as well. But of course, your disappointment, which um, you know is um, incredibly sad, is that this did not catch fire. Nobody said, um, not enough people said, oh, now that we know the things that it takes, let me learn how to implement those and transform my school. And that is, I think, fundamentally because it does require an immense amount of work. It does require devotion of every player down the line from the principal, especially the principal down. Um, and that's just um, not as much fun, I guess. I don't know. There's not an incentive to put it in place. People still come to your school because in a public school, as long as they live in your neighborhood, they have to come to your school because that's the only place where they can get it without charge. It, captive audience. Yeah. yeah. Is, um, we start, talked earlier that charter schools have wide variations, some not very good, some spectacular, and the average maybe a little higher than the, than the public school system. Do you think charter schools expanding is, is helpful? So I asked you what you would do in one school. What would you do if your education czar or the head of a school district in a bad, low-performing city, and you, you weren't worried about keeping your job um, because you might lose it, but what would you do? Well, that's a great question. I, 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 I don't know. Um, I would certainly um, 
I think there's two two options I'd have to think about, and I'd, I'd want to, you know, it probably depends a lot on on the location I'm actually in. One would be um, to work with our state legislature to provide resources for people who want to do implement school models that we know are effective, like this. So you talk about incentives. The federal government could have changed the incentives, right? They had the uh, school improvement grants. They gave billions of dollars away. That's the one of the ways we were able to do some of this work was we got school improvement grants. Um, but even with our results, the only thing that the two political parties here could agree on, right? The the one side didn't want all, all the teacher turnover and that, and the other didn't want people telling schools what to do. So the end result of the compromise was, here's some money, do whatever you think is right, which is exactly wrong. They should have said, hey, here's the thing that we think is the, the, the only thing that has real evidence that you can turn around a school. But if you could do that and provide the, the, the guidance and the resources and the incentives to do it the right way, that would be option one. Option two is more radical. I think Milton Friedman would like option two. It's not more radical. It's just different. I'll call it that. Option two is let's just give the per pupil expenditure to the parents and let them let them have choices. Right. And so that's where I would lean because this is really hard and complicated. Because if 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 we looked at inner cities and saw, huh, there's a lot of kids there with twenty thousand dollars a year to spend on educational resources in the ways that they they and their parents see fit then institutions would develop to serve them. And, and so we always talk about competition and this kind of thing in public schools, but it doesn't really exist. Right? Like it's, you know, as you said before, the public schools, is, you know, as long as you're in the neighborhood, you have a captive audience. But if we change that and we made per people expenditure exportable, that might be interesting. I haven't thought all the way through it, but that's, those are the kind of two options I would be thinking about. Either we do it the right way or we provide resources for the families to figure out how they need to do it. Let's talk about parents for a minute, because I know you've also done work with parents and incentives. I think there's a lot of, um, well, let's call it racism. I think there's a lot of racism about what parents are capable of in poor neighborhoods. You know, a lot of people argue whether they believe it or not, or whether they're being strategic, I don't know. But they'll say things like, well, you know, uh, a poor single mom, she, how could she assess what a good school is? I mean, she doesn't know anything about education. Um, so we can't give her the freedom to spend her money where on her child's behalf, uh, we have to top down, improve the school system through the whole district and not allow these competitive forces because they might work in other parts of, of the economy, but they won't work in education because the consumer is uninformed. We hear the same thing, by the way, without racism about say healthcare, you're not a doctor. You couldn't in a real free market for healthcare, which we've never had had anything close to in uh, 70 or so years in America or more or anything remotely like it ever. Um, You know, they, people would say, well, but yeah, but healthcare is different because, because people don't know it requires too much expertise. Um, I find this argument repugnant for all kinds of reasons, but I'm, I'm curious your response and in particular, what kind of on the ground experiences you had with parents in thinking about their children's education. Um, that argument angers me more than even more than it angers you. Um, um, any strategy that is poor people don't know anything, so let's do it for them. I don't want to hear disgusting. <laughs> okay. Uh, they're, they're dumb. They don't know what to do. We got to do it for them. I don't know. Sitting right here at Harvard, there's some dummies here too. We don't do that for them. Anyway. So, um, I, I, I don't like that. And, um, uh, I have seen on the ground 
what you'd expect. This is not going to be surprising. Everybody loves that. People love their kids. They don't always do it in the right way. I also don't parent in the right way. I'm sure some of your listeners are going, oh my God, he charged his kids $2 a buck, $2 a plate to take him in the kitchen. Yeah. The next day I told him it was going to be five. Uh, I'm sure that's not the right thing to do, but I love them and I'm doing my best. And the same thing with every single parent that I've ever met. And some of them have substance abuse issues and some of them have uh, don't. And, and, and there are a lot of things in those neighborhoods that are going on in the same way that they're going on in uh, independent of income in other neighborhoods. But the, the, the common feature is that we want better for our kids than we had. And I'm, I'm reminded of a, a woman uh, when I was at the, I used to serve on the state board of education here in Massachusetts and we were closing a bad school. And the woman really thought her kid was going to a great school because her kid had A pluses. And having that conversation with her, it wasn't because she wasn't unsophisticated. It wasn't because uh, she didn't understand what was going on. It's because they had purposefully lied to this woman. Okay. And and so if we um, communicate with the communities and help them understand the set of choices and the consequences that come from those, just like we would do in any other community, then they're going to make the choices that are the best for their families. And sometimes you see in data that people in low-income neighborhoods make choices that rich people might not make. And so you start to say, well, maybe it's not in their culture to value test scores. No, you know what they value first? Safety. But you don't think about that because in the suburbs, you're already safe. And so you, you, everything in there is safe, relatively speaking. And so you choose higher test scores. But when you look at an inner city, you see someone choose a lower test score school. You say, what are they doing? They don't really know what they're doing. We can't trust these people. Ah, we can't trust you. You haven't looked at the full data. What they're choosing is safety first and then test scores, right? But you wouldn't know that until you get into those communities and actually talk to people and understand that their preferences uh, are just like ours. All we want is for our kids to be upwardly mobile, uh, to be good kids, um, and, and to have a better life than our own. And so I think that parents know that better than 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 uh, than most, I think we just have to. It's a it's it's more of an information problem than a preference problem. So it's on us to make sure we're communicating clearly. And is there any um, when you were in the trenches in these large, massive projects and trying to do dramatic things and interacting? I'm sure with the angry parents, loving parents, with you, <laughs> people who are grateful yeah. to you. I'm sure, but it seems to me that the um, high expectations. The fifth item on your list would also apply to the parents that you'd want to encourage the parents to aim high and assume that they will rise just like their their kids will. If you look in the uh, educational childhood longitudinal survey, something like 30 percent of black families think their kids are going to get a Ph.D. when they're in kindergarten. Wow. For blacks, way higher than, than for whites. I don't know what to make of that, but I'm just saying it's not obvious to me at all that there are different preferences or views or expectations or goals. There's a different set of constraints. There's a different sets of information, right? Like, I don't think well, a lot of people in the cities don't know what biotech is and venture capital and all the other uh, interesting things that are out there. Uh, and as I said before, that's on us. So but before we assign it to preferences, I, what I have found is that, you know, when when I was over in Israel this summer talking to folks or, 
you know, in the suburbs of Paris or in the 10th district in Vienna talking to the Turkish immigrants or here in uh, inner cities in America. We're more alike than different, man. It's it really, it really is. And maybe this is just because I'm getting old and, and, and I see commonalities everywhere, right? Uh, it, it, it is parents want the same things. They may not communicate it in the right way. Uh, and not all of them do, of course. But on average, uh, what we want is pretty simple. And, and, and the big difference is the opportunity sets that are available to us are quite, quite different. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and, um, and I think that's what we should focus on. It's about the opportunity sets, not about the preferences. Uh, so my original plan for this interview is to talk to you for about 20 minutes on education and 20 minutes on crime <laughs> and about 20 minutes on, um, equal opportunity ventures. And we're a little over an hour into this conversation and You're doing a great job. Well, I'd like to talk more about <laughs> education, but you have a hard stop in a minute, and I, I, I want to tell my listeners that if uh, you have time down the road, we'll we'll get to those other topics the next time you come back to Econ Talk. Um, Anytime. And um, let, let's close with maybe a personal reflection. I I am touched by the passion you still have for this area. I know it's not been your prime focus now for a while. Um, you've, um, you've turned to lots of other things, which are incredibly important. We'll, I hope talk about those in another episode, uh, if you return, but I'm struck by the fact that you're so passionate, which is why I thought we'd talk 20 minutes. I thought, yeah, we'll go over his old work and, but, but I couldn't hold you down and I couldn't keep myself from continuing the, the questions. So when you lay in bed at night and you, you think about this chapter of your career, this incredible, there's nothing like it, I don't think. There's there's no other, there's a lot of economists who study education. Nobody has been as innovative as you have been. There are people who made claims and tried to test them, but nobody's been as innovative as you have been. No one has gone to the barricades and gotten the money that was needed to test these in a serious way rather than just a one-off aside in a school district. These are large-scale massive efforts and at worst you change the lives of of thousands of kids one of whom at least came to harvard and, and maybe a few others but you've you had a huge impact not the impact you wanted but when you lay in bed at night and you look back on this part of your career will you ever come back to it is it just something that you sometimes wish had turned out maybe better do you feel satisfaction just Reflect on it, you know, in your own in your own life. Um, it's a phenomenal question, and I'm going to answer it in, uh, in a brutally honest way, as I as I always try to do. I am wholly unsatisfied with that work. Um, I'm happy we did it. Um, I think it change some lives not enough i'm going to tear up man um but we also lost some students on the way for us it's a kid named marcus that i was in a high school there and they came to me and they said hey marcus is maybe not make it and what can you do 
I flew down to Houston. This is just one of several examples like this. Talked to Marcus and and um, a phenomenal kid, phenomenal kid, smart, witty, thoughtful, could get science concepts like that. But he's in jail now for 20 years for armed robbery. And I failed him. I failed him. So now the kid in the Crown Heights, PS399, was a fifth grader. And I was told that his gangs were starting to kind of circle around him and whether I'd take him under my wing. And I said, absolutely, 100%. Gave him a flip phone. At that time, I'm so old. <laughs> I told him, call me anytime. I was just about to get on stage to do a keynote. And he called me. And he needed help. I looked out in an audience and there was a thousand people waiting. And I said, I'll call you right back as soon as I'm done with this. And he never spoke to me again. I failed that kid. I lay awake at night and I don't sleep much because I feel personally responsible for what's going on. These are my people. They're your people too. And we have to do absolutely everything we can in my opinion, to change their lives. And I tried hard at that, that stage of my life. I worked as hard as I physically could, but I don't think it was enough. Yes, we had some impact, but it wasn't enough. Will I ever come back to this? Absolutely. I never left. It's just that I thought that and think police use of force was actually hindering people's desire to, to invest in education. And so education has always been number one on my mind. 100%. Uh, we'll talk about the venture stuff later. That's just a way to accelerate impact. The focus has never gone away. Um, I, I plan to die on this hill. I, I will be fighting for these kids every single day, 100 hours a week, until I take my last breath. And I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. That's just true. It's just what I, I want to do. And it's because... I know that there's real potential. People say, oh, every kid can learn. Come on, man. Give me, of course, duh, right? But like the question is, do you really fundamentally feel that you are responsible for their economic mobility? Do you feel like we have a civic covenant that we should ensure that there's equal opportunity? That, uh, as I said before, potential is distributed uniformly, but opportunity is not. Because if you fundamentally believe that there's a civic covenant that we need to get to, that, that opportunities should be equal, not outcomes, that's different, but opportunities, then you wouldn't rest at night either. And so I'm way far away from being done. Uh, I'm 45 years old. I've never had more energy. Um, I am 100% in this. And my only wish, Russ, is that we had more young scholars who wanted to do it because um, we have some and, and, and I've had many students over the years, but people think these problems are intractable. Yeah. People think that if they find the wrong thing on police or education, they're going to be called a racist. People think and we could go on. That's selfish, though. <laughs> it's not about us. Right. Uh, I'll close with one story. During the second time I got kicked out in New York City, <laughs> I lamented this fact to Joel Klein. 
And Joel Klein said, what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, nothing, because I just got kicked out of public schools again. And he said, let's uh, go to a Yankee game. So we go to the Yankee game. We sit down. We order some bad Bud Lights or something. And I start lamenting. And I start just complaining. How could you guys kick me out again? Yada, yada. You say you want black role models. I've got a PhD. I'm working hard, but I'm trying to do my best. And you keep kicking me out. And da, 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 da. In about the third inning, he raised a glass. And he looked me in the eyes and he said, if it ever becomes about us, let's quit, okay? And that is probably the wisest thing anyone's ever told me. It's just so not about us, right? This is about the very fabric, in my opinion, of what the American dream is about. This is, I'm a patriot. This is about providing opportunities for everyone so that based on their own merit, kids can rise. And I won't rest until that's true. My guest today has been Roland Pryor. Roland, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks, buddy. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.